University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to myself? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, skills, and beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Is the end nigh? Today, Sarah Dent from the Young Agrarians will join me to discuss the future of farming in Canada the role of the young agrarians and innovative solutions happening across the country. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Kluhus, the Klaaman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who've walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. I'm actually going to pause this for a moment because we are getting a lot of wind noises in the microphone. I can hear them on the radio. And I'm going to deal with the fan. um, And then we're going to have a, a tiny musical break while we deal with that. And then we'll be back with Sarah and the Young Agrarians. Welcome back to Folk U Radio with today's guest, Sarah Dent with the Young Agrarians. Sarah, welcome to the studio and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me today. It's really an honor to be here and to be on Cortez. So let's start a little bit about, uh, with a little bit of background about you and your, your story Um, And maybe that can go into the origins of the Young Agrarians. Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, basically, I am a city-born person, um, born in Toronto, grew up in Vancouver, and um, discovered farming um, really like in my 20s. So 2006, I got to go and spend a magical four months on a few different farms in the Kootenays. And discovered the joy of growing food and um, harvesting food for the first time in my life. 
and photographing the farms that I was on and being able to go and sell food at the farmer's market and trade the beautiful food from the farm I worked on with other farmers in the area and just basically discovered the barter economy and being in a world or a way of being in the world that was, you know, connected to the land and connected to the food. And I went back to the city after that summer and moved back into the uh, warehouse studio I was living in in downtown Vancouver. Um, As you can imagine, I went from (laughs) like, you know, being on farms in rural BC for a summer, like back into the middle of, you know, full on city life. And I applied, um, I probably at the end of 2007 for the Lanea Ecological Garden Program and magically got in. I was actually like the 12th pick on their list and they only take 11, well, at the time they only took 11 people and one person dropped out and I (laughs) managed to get a spot in the program. So I came here in 2008 and I can, I still remember... um, I lived at the far end of the farm in the Airstream, and I still remember being afraid of the bugs. And, you know, by the end of the program, I was fascinated with insects. And just that whole transition from not having any land-based hands-on skills to actually um, feeling like I was part of something um, bigger, the land, the food system. And uh, that magical year at uh, court. At Linnea Farm Program, I always joke that, you know, it was like being kicked out of the Garden of Eden when you (laughs) had to leave. It was the same year that I also got to go to Social Venture Institute uh, here on the island. And I had been, you know, working a contract with Power of Hope at the time. Power of Hope is really how I ended up here on Cortez, going and being a Zilla, uh, (laughs) one of the adults at these youth empowerment summer programs at the farm and so it all kind of came around to uh, learning about farming discovering farming getting a really good beginner education in ecological agriculture and really discovering my deep passion for the land and the food system and then getting exposed to the kind of progressive social change business community and eventually that all led into the startup of Young Agrarians. So tell us a little bit about the Young Agrarians. What what is it? It sounds like it's such a, you know, could be a small thing, but it's it's a major deal in Canada. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how it's grown. So Young Agrarians is a network for new and young ecological farmers. And uh, at the time when it started, it was because we were we were really inspired. There's a, the conceptual founder of Young Agrarians is a farmer named Sean Dory, um, and uh, basically um, in 2011, I pitched the idea at the Social Venture Institute, and you know at that time it was people were seeing my photographs of uh, young farmers on farms. And the idea really was, how do we get something going? Canada side, like the Greenhorns, like the National Young Farmers Coalition down in the United States that would support a new generation of people getting onto the land. And so today, um, 
you're an established organization that has a, a foothold, maybe we could say, throughout Canada. So tell us a little bit about um, the programs that you're running and the scale that you're working at. Okay, so we run five main programs, and some of our programs are national, some of our programming work is in the prairies, and the majority of our programming work is here in British Columbia. And so basically nationally, we run a very active website blog where we post opportunities into farming land, jobs, available resources. We have a secondary website. It's called a UMAP, which is a spinoff of UPIC. And the idea is that you add your listing that would be like a support resource for new and young farmers. So we've been collecting data for the last, well, basically since 2013 for that project. And then from there, we have this uh, idea we talk about. You need to gather your people online and then bring them together offline in real time on farms so that they can experience being together. And this is really where the Power of Hope model comes through is we started gathering people. Um, really, uh, those events sprang up and they happen, have happened across the country. At this stage, the majority of events have happened in BC and Alberta. And those are on farm. People come together. They do introduction circles. People find out who's who, where they are, what kind of farming they're doing, if there are any needs or opportunities, like I need housing or I need land or I need a boyfriend or a girlfriend or I need to figure out how to use the tractor. Um, and uh, so those introduction circles have really helped network up um, the new and young farmer community, especially in Western Canada. Um, and then from there, currently, we have a on-farm training in regenerative agriculture, which runs in the prairies, which my prairies counterpart, Dana Penrith, who's been working on YA uh, since 2015 in Alberta and now in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. That's uh, basically 30 host farms that hire young people to come and train on farms. So they've been selected because they can provide quality educational experiences and training for new farmers. And um, while there's like craft out in Ontario and soil in BC, there's been really no um, opportunity in the prairies for this type of on-farm apprenticeship program, specifically in regenerative agriculture. And that program is also a partnership with Holistic Management Canada that runs a whole regenerative accelerator project in Manitoba and helps to pay farmers to implement ecosystem services on farms and train them how to um, enhance ecosystem services and also transition from conventional over to regenerative agriculture. So it's a brilliant confluence of partners and collaborators and, um, you know, ways of training new farmers. And I'm, I'm not farming the land for productionist agriculture, but I am growing food ecologically as part of a symbiotic ecosystem that I am responsible for stewarding and I need to make a living because, you know, capitalism and the land title system are, are real colonial deals. And 
over here in British Columbia, we run something. It's a business-to-business, a B2B uh, mentorship program where we pay established farmers to mentor new farmers and startup and act as a sounding board in those um, early years where people are extremely vulnerable because they're in startup. They're often bootstrapping. All all people generally have to start small (laughs) in 2022. Cost of land and production is so expensive. And so we're really there to try and provide that um, skills competency development, one-on-one peer mentorship, which is really inspired through my experiences through the Social Venture Institute and all the incredible peer mentorship I've gotten through that network. Um, And then our biggest offering, our biggest program, which is really a huge win for the organization because it really marked the recognition by the province of British Columbia that we were doing something awesome here in BC with young agrarians is we launched uh, something called the BC land matching program, which is a provincial land matching service, which is adapted from Quebec's land bank program called Arter. And we have um, six dedicated staff. Five of them are regional land matchers around the province and they work with people who hold land and they work with people who want to start farm businesses and looking for land and they help the parties Uh, to ensure that they have a clear vision, they have uh, a developed plan for how they would start up, they've thought through all the red flags, there are enough green flags, and uh, we help actually with the um, terms of agreement between the parties. And so that's work that we've been piloting a little bit in Alberta to build up the inventory of available land and new farmers. We have a active inventory on our UMAP of people looking for land and people with land. And also in BC, we have a three-year project, which is a training partnership with an Indigenous-led organization called Kinshift, whereby we are able to pay for farmers in our network to take reconciliation training, gain some cultural competencies for uh, working with Indigenous peoples alongside um, and hopefully increase the relational capacity of new young farmers living in rural areas that would like to be allies and like to, um, you know, be uh, in a mutual support um, in our rural landscapes, which are being hit so hard with climate change. Um, And so really, you know, Indigenous food sovereignty is um, where I think the focus should really be. Um, it benefits everybody and, um, effectively it's probably the area right now, like the newest area of program work for me in BC, our Prairie's counterparts are also doing, um, different types of work around reconciliation, um, that I feel, uh, very passionate about currently. So just in summary, we do work online. We run educational events all year. We also have uh, a new um, set of e-learning courses. Um, there'll be more offered this winter, like our business boot camp. We run the on-farm training in uh, regenerative agriculture in the prairies. We have a BC business mentorship network and we have a BC land matching program. And we also have this reconciliation training project. Oh, and I forgot to mention that we're also doing some policy work leading up to the next federal agricultural partnership framework for Canada. So clearly this is not just for actually young uh, or even in some ways uh, new agrarians. So why the name young agrarians? Um, 
Well, it's specific and nuanced. So we say young at heart, doesn't matter what age you are. We work with a lot of new farmers that are basically uh, 40s, 50s um, and older. Uh, We really want, um, quote unquote, older farmers to be part of our network. But young agrarians, uh, the word agrarian is really taken from Wendell Berry. It's meant to create this idea of um, relationship to nature, relationship to the land. And we didn't use the word new because I have a liberal arts degree and anytime historically we've used the word new, it usually has kind of a like right wing fascist connotation to it. So um, we didn't want to use the word new. We didn't want to use the word all agrarians because it sounds like a baseball team and really like the argument for even doing the work that we're doing is because there's um, so few young people farming in Canada. Um, The number has declined since 1991. There's a direct correlation. You can see it on a bar graph between the cost of land and production and the declining numbers of young people entering into the sector. And currently we're at an all-time low. Basically, we're at an all-time low in terms of number of people on these lands that we call Canada today who are farming, it's about 1.3% of the population that includes temporary foreign workers. And there's less than 23,000 young farm operators in the can- in the country that are 35 and younger, and more than 50% of them are leasing land. So we're actually in a demographic crisis. Um, there's very little succession happening in the sector, and it's really um, an area that needs focus. And I like to give people some comparative statistics because a lot of people are asking why there aren't more um, people of color, for example, in farming populations. It's like actually a really good question, right? Like who's been able to own land and generally it's been white men there's a lot more women now that are showing up on the census in agriculture more than half of the people that we work with are female um but if you do that comparative so if about 1.3 percent of the the population here are farming um about five percent of the population are indigenous and somewhere of upwards of eight percent plus are african descent so Uh, We're really talking about a very complex um, demographic, um, like the skills that you need to grow food. Um, But it's ironically one that we are all dependent upon. Like we're all dependent upon primary production in order to eat. And we're all dependent on it in order to have restaurants or to add value to foods. Um, Primary production is really the heart of any economy. And so it's part of how we need to be looking transitionally at um, basically uh, like how is it that we can continue to have people that grow food and feed us and how can they do it in this um, economy where cost of production and land is so high. Um, Maybe we were never meant to own the land. Um, but we still need future uh, food growers. And, and what kind of creativity do we need in order to have that future? And, and what could that 
um, transition be um, socially and in the coming years? Because with climate change, um, a lot of people in the sector are no longer talking about mitigation through agricultural soils and good practices. Most people are only talking about adaptation now because you can't actually mitigate the amount of emissions from oil and gas through agricultural soils. Uh, you could if we had 200 years, but we don't have 200 years. We're in what you would call rundown. Um, we're in that kind of last decade where people talked about runaway climate change. And I don't, you know, the end is nigh was kind of a joke for the title for the show today. Um, so I don't want to just be defeatist, but... Um, I think we're we're really in a time where radical in innovation and leadership are needed for the change, uh, whereby we all have a healthy food system in the future that's accessible by all, that, you know, has actually um, uh, a labor force that uh, is respected and treated well, um, and that, you know, there's um, the ability for us to reposition our food economy as the heart of our communities and our cultures. So can we uh, go a little deeper into this uh, particular issue of kind of the hurdles to going into farming in particular uh, today? You've talked a little bit already about climate change, um, about access to, to land that's actually farmable. Um, and uh, I guess one of the things that you also sort of slightly mentioned is um, like you how hard it is to make a living so the sort of economics of it um what else am i missing in that list that are the sort of big things that we need to overcome mm -hmm. so the the three buckets really that are commonly used when talking about supporting new farmers are access to knowledge capital and land um, so the knowledge transfer piece is really exponential. Um, it might be that people get into farming because they want to be on the land and they want to grow food and grow food ecologically. Um, but when you add in the equation of like, okay, you're growing food and now you also have to be a business person too, um, basically you then need to develop your business skills. And so the only way to make farming um, like break even is basically that you have excellent record keeping. You can analyze how your seasons are going from year to year. You can have some kind of resiliency in there for when um, crops fail or new bugs come and eat your food or you run out of water for too many weeks in August or um, so effectively I think knowledge is really the biggest piece and then if you translate that into being able to access capital and la land the knowledge piece is like really essential because the more knowledge you have and the more communication skills that you have the more you're probably going to be able to figure out some way to access capital to help capitalize your startup and the more you're going to be able to potentially lease somebody's land and have an amical relationship with whoever that landholder is. So um, some people are lucky enough to come in and buy land. They're usually people who've already had first careers or they have intergenerational wealth and they can basically cash into farming and um, you know, actually be able to have some equity in the, the land as well. 
Um, so, yeah, there's lots of challenges getting into the sector, challenges getting into any sector. There's, you know, business failure statistics for agriculture that are similar to all sectors. Um, but, you know, the thing that keeps it real with farming is that you're working in a organic system. You're working with the land. You're working with nature. And you can't really totally control it. It's not under your control. You're just basically there to figure out, you know, how to get whatever you're doing going and how to roll with that. And, um, you know, we do have some really incredible new and young farmers in our network that are making a go at it and they're making a living and they're playing significant roles in their communities and they're helping to keep farmers markets going and um, it's it's really quite beautiful those those new and young farmers out there and also just to acknowledge like all of our farmers in general um, but yeah so and I, you say like, okay, it's possible to get access to capital, but I want to dig deeper into that because I, 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 my, my gut response was really, because it is so hard to get access to capital as someone who is in business for themselves and things that are way less risky than farming. So can, can you talk a little bit of like, not just what it means to like actually get access to capital, um, and, uh, and what that can look like, but also the limitations like you run a charity and charities one of the things i know about charities is they're not giving they're not able to give money to individuals so uh, can you talk a little bit about what you can do with your charity to help with this piece mm -hmm. and what things you're actually seeing that's helping get access to capital for our farmers yeah so access to capital is like this you know we could do a whole podcast on access to capital um one of the things we do a lot of is referring farmers to available resources in the areas where they are. And we offer these free by con or by contribution programs so that we're really providing the, you know, business readiness, production readiness, enterprise readiness, development elements that would help people qualify for capital loans and lending. And so it really depends on where you are in the province. Like for a long time, we've been dreaming like Van City runs microloans, not contingent on land collateralization. So you can access some micro lending for your farming operation as long as you're in the Van City geographic catchment. Of course, they're an amazing credit union with purpose. And so they're willing to do that more character based uh, form of lending the best lender in the country in terms of interest rates is Farm Credit Canada. But historically, while they have the lowest interest rates, they also have like a whole bunch of other services that they can offer you that uh, are, I believe, often free. So they can help with transition, um, like older generations transitioning land to younger generations. They have some really cool farming software. They have the lowest interest rates. But more likely, you're going to get a loan from them specifically to buy land. And so if you're in an area where the land is way too expensive, that's going to be really tough. And you probably need a long, long, long-term lease, perhaps registered on title, to be able to get like a working capital or an operating capital loan from them that's not tied to the collateralization of the loan through land. Um, people will also access in the farming community, like I've heard this quite a bit in the Kootenays, they'll access lending from Community Futures. Just because of the way Community Futures is structured, you would go through a business development program and then you would 
access their loan capital after you've proven that you have like substantiated your business and you have enough like um, basically on paper information so that they know where you're going and you feel confident to start up. But they have um, higher interest rates and we've been asking for a long time, like, please, could someone just set up a really good uh, loan fund that would be provincial in nature and um, do character-based lending and do micro-lending and being able to like take that risk on people but then offer extremely low interest rates for the loans. And so, you know, depending on where you're at in your journey and how much business skill that you have and what you look like on paper, um, like, you know, accessing capital has that complexity for everyone. Like, you know, if you're in debt or... Um, you know, like you've never had a credit card or <laughs> whatever the different elements are. So there are lenders out there for farmers, but you have to figure out who, where, what, and we could definitely use like a better kind of universal program. We've just partnered up with Futurepreneur and they're offering loans between twenty dollars and $60,000. And that also can come with mentorship. And they are keen on lending to farmers as well. They have a bit of restriction there, um, but they are an excellent organization, also a nonprofit. Um, and so, yeah, we've just started working with them so that we can refer farmers over to their twenty to $60,000 loans and their national um, in scope. So, yeah, like there's lending out there, but you, you still have to qualify for it, right? And you often don't know how to do that until you have to go through the process. And so we might, Young Agrarians might offer you some enterprise readiness coaching. Um, that could be like two hours or five hours. We have a ton of templates on our website, on our business tools page. Um, we're really trying to help people get to a place where they can capitalize. And yes, it's complicated. Not only does it seem complicated, but now I feel like the picture of what a farmer is today is suddenly like you have to be a great communicator. You have to be a great business person. You have to know a ton about ecological systems and and not just gardening. You have to actually know how to rotate crops and manage your soil and all these things. It seems really complicated. Can you give us a like a picture of what a successful young farmer looks like and maybe in two different scenarios because I imagine it looks really different in a place like the islands um, out here where land is so expensive and um, a successful farmer is probably pulling together a pretty different model than say maybe in the prairies where they're maybe they have access to larger pieces of land etc can you tell us a little bit of what an operation might look like successfully today um, well, I'll give the example that we've been using without naming names, um, because I, I can't really disclose, like, you know, certain financial information. Um, but basically, like, um, in, 
like in the lower mainland, like a successful firm that was in operation for several years. Um, you know, by the end of their 10 years, they were they had multiple employees, couple, and they probably did around four hundred and fifty thousand dollars on an acre and a half. And they did that through um, having excellent relationships with restaurants and really providing a very high quality um, vegetable. They both had training. They both had um, university level schooling in agriculture. Um, and so that background training is really essential. Like we really like to say, okay, you think you're ready to start a business, but have you worked? Have you managed a farm in the past? Do you have enough experience laboring on farms to know that you actually want to um, start a farm business? So that that one particular um, market garden is a great example of where someone could take it if they have access to that market. It's because they had access to the Metro Vancouver restaurant market um i think that um when i think about the prairies i think about our uh holistic managers you know the ones that are rotationally grazing the land with animals um getting back the perennial grass systems you know their focus is really to get as many birds and insects and um wild species of plants and um you know the um, like animals and creatures that live in those landscapes back into the landscape. So as they have more uh, protein and sugars in a healthy, vibrant grassland ecosystem, they can intensify their stocking density for um, uh, cows, for um, pigs, for chickens. Um, but when you're talking about like something like uh, small-scale meat production, um, like, and in the prairies context, you might be talking about, um, like a couple hundred acres still being small scale, um, because they have much bigger, um, parcels of land in agriculture than we do in BC, which is like almost, you know, 70 plus percent small scale here. Um, like animals are really the toughest, uh, jam out there right now because of the bottlenecks around processing, um, abattoirs and the cost of processing the meat, packaging it. Um, so it might yield a high return at market if it's a really excellent, high quality, direct marketed product, but the margins are often really quite small. So, you know, trying to figure out your quote unquote value add in primary production is often the challenge. Um, that is why some conventional farmers are actually transitioning their farmland today because there are better premiums for organic grain or organic legumes. Um, but it's that transition window that is so complex for a lot of farmers to go from one form to another. So, um, yeah, we don't recommend that new young people come in that don't have enough labor experience on farms um, and start farms. We want to make sure that they're really ready to do that. And so that hopefully they can develop into like uh, when we say viability, we mean that a farm is breaking even and people aren't working themselves to death on the farm. <laughs> but it's kind of like a, we, we always joke when people are like, 
oh, like um, someone's talking about the farm being profitable. Oh, there's a profit margin on the farm, you know, like, oh, okay, yeah, they're making a quote unquote profit after expenses. So is that with the owner's draw or without the owner's draw? And often they'll be like, oh, right, that's like before the owner's draw. So I have a profit if I'm not paying myself. And, you know, like people live on their farms and the farm can pay for the on-farm expenses of being there and living there and farm gas and all of these different things that you can right through the farm business. So it might write down your other living expenses, but whether you're paying yourself is kind of another, another story, right? So speaking of which, what, what are people doing as far as um, farm help on small, you know, more sustainable farms? What is the access to farm support and labor? I imagine once upon a time we had, you know, eight kids and they helped us on the farm, but that doesn't seem to be the model anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, some people um, are still having small numbers of kids and eventually they work on the farm. Um <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, yeah. So um, basically, like um, people are like there's major labor, labor shortages across the country and uh, people don't have um, uh, a lot of access to skilled um, labor on farm. It, it, it's basically a huge issue. I think a lot of the smaller scale farms um, might be more attractive for a new young person wanting to um, find an employment opportunity on a farm because they're, um, you know, basically going to be able to like learn about the uh, sustainable practices on the farm, whether that's organic or ecological. Um, and they often, you know, smaller scale farms, like we, we generally tell people like, um, find out about that farm from the community, like see if people like working there. Do they have a good reputation in the community? Um, and, you know, if they do, then, you know, go, go have an employment opportunity. And some of these farms have great reputations and they really represent like what can be really like a paradigm changing moment in time for people coming in and having their first jobs on farm. Um, and a lot of farms in general, like they often end up being uh, seasonal employees, like they don't necessarily need all their employees all year round. And so like managing labor on farm is like, again, one of the probably one of the trickiest um, aspects of, um, you know, that transition from startup to more established. It, it kind of all depends on your ability to hire and get more labor onto your property and be able to train and retain and have people come back annually and be part of your farming um, system. So it's a huge topic in agriculture today. It's, you know, at the national uh, task force level with the federal government, they have a mandate to try and figure out how to fill the labor shortages, which have been exasperated by COVID. And um, I'm not sure if uh, we're really going to be able to do that. I often talk to people about, you know, like you have labor shortages on big conventional farms 
terms that are out in rural areas, like how many new and young people are going to want to go somewhere if there isn't a community there or there isn't like a culture on farm or there isn't, you know, like if you're going to do grain or, you know, canola, for example, like is there anything on the farm that's going to draw you there? Like is there um, a garden so that you can at least grow some fresh vegetables while you're doing the grain production? Like what's going to keep you in that environment? And I think a lot of new and young people today, when they're looking at employment opportunities, they want to go somewhere where there's like a healthy ecosystem, where there's a community, where there's some local culture to tap into. And I think that's a big part of the context around why farms that often are paying minimum wage, like can't actually engage more labor onto the farm. So this seems to come back to, which is a really large topic, which is um, the sort of North American addiction to really cheap food. Um, I know that in the U.S. they we pay uh, in the U.S. less, uh, um, you know, based on income than anywhere else in the world for our food. Uh, I would imagine Canada is actually higher than that, particularly because small and remote communities are paying a lot more. But we're still paying a tiny percentage of of our overall incomes on food compared to uh, you know the, much of the rest of the world. So what does like what does that mean? Like if we're going to if we're so addicted to paying so little for food, how do we ever rebalance a system? Can we take a pause? Yeah. 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 We, uh, for that big question. We're going to go to a music break and we'll be back. Welcome back to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio. We are here today on Folk U with Sarah Dent of the Young Agrarians. And I just asked her the big question, which is, if we are paying so little relative to our incomes in North America for food, how do we actually fix um, a, you know, a, a difficult farming situation for farmers who need to pay employees and, and earn a living? Oh my gosh, the cheap food question. <laughs> it's so huge, right? 
um, you know, working class people like need to be able to buy food and food prices have gone up globally, exponentially, year over year. Entire countries are watching their people walk out into the streets because of food price increases, industrialization has led us to a point in time where we have used oil and gas to basically um, have a ton of conveniences that we didn't have a hundred years ago. And it's radically changed the number of people that are actively working on the land that have now transitioned into urban environments. And it's enabled us to have calories, primary product coming out of the landscape and into our urban environments and effectively it's you know radically increased population numbers around the planet so um i you know i think with cheap food like the the big issue these days is that we have more than enough food to feed the world what we really have is actually a distribution issue we have so much food waste out there in the world it's really that food doesn't get distributed well and a lot of it uh, doesn't get consumed and um, then it just becomes another form of waste um, and then when we're looking at the economics just specifically here in Canada you know as we've kind of had a export import focused food system to bring that cheap food into the places that we live. Um, we're in the paradigm where because those food costs are going up and up and up as transportation costs increase and cost of production increases, those those food prices are going up for people. I kind of jokingly say that at a certain point, um, you're going to basically be able to get the food at the farmer's market on par with the food at the grocery store. I think we're seeing that more and more. Um, but uh, people definitely um, undervalue or don't comprehend why. Um, like, let's just use the example of the certified organic tomato. That's like a big, beautiful tomato, and it costs you like $5 at the farmer's market. Um, that seems like a really expensive piece of food, but really what it is, is that's actually how much it costs to produce that food. Actually, your $5 tomato is probably a $10 tomato, um, but your farmer isn't paying themselves, so you get the $5 tomato. So I always joke because when I go to the farmer's markets, I don't ask people what their food prices are. I don't mean that I'm rich and I can buy anything at the farmer's market. I just mean that I know that the farmer is working their buns off and maybe not necessarily getting paid for all their labor hours. And I expect to get paid for my labor hours. Most people expect to get paid for their labor hours. Why is it that we think that the farmer can't charge the actual cost of um, production? So um, yeah, we're living in the cheap food paradigm. And a lot of people are waking up to the health impacts of that highly processed food system and the lack of um, regeneration happening in the landscape and all the uh, impacts that are happening from that. So I think we are in the coming decades moving out of the cheap food to the expensive food system. And we have so many things to work out in terms of how those food calories are moving um, into and through our populations, who's growing them. Um, my, my biggest uh, thing, I think, since I started working in 
food systems is really about like what is the quality of life of the person that grew that food for you so if they're um, growing you your conventional tomato and they're being highly exposed to um, conventional um, pesticides and chemicals they might actually die from exposure to those chemicals um, your conventional banana growers might go blind from the exposure to those pesticides and chemicals so when you're looking at that cheap food you have to ask like at what cost to who at what cost to the person that grew your food is it cheap for you to buy that tomato and buy that banana so what's driving me the most is that if I get that tomato at the market um, at least I know where that farm is I know what their growing practices are and I know that uh, they're not exposing their labor to um, pesticides and chemicals that could potentially take their lives So you said that I believe this the stat was about one point three percent of of Canadians are farmers. So I'm wondering, like that's not a lot. And so how much of our food that we're eating in Canada is actually coming from Canada? I wish we had really good statistics on that. You know, about five years ago, there was a whole report that circulated in BC that was specific to um, that question. And it estimated that approximately half of what we consume in BC is produced in BC. BC is really fortunate to have a huge amount of diversity in terms of what is grown here. Um, I really love that Buy BC marketing campaign that the province does. Um, that's a great one to look for on products, the Buy BC stamp. Um, but I don't actually know for Canada, um, and BC doesn't have any recent um, statistics on what we grow versus, you know, what we consume. So Canada could definitely, uh, you know, the land that we're, we're here. We, we have a rarity here, actually, of, like, if you look around the world at other places like uh, England or Japan um, or... Um, uh, Europe or a, a lot of places have actually used up all of their agricultural lands like they're fully subscribed right and so we actually have this weird thing going on here um, like you know in BC and other parts of the country where there is available farmland um, so we're, we're actually basically like um, in a position where um, we already produce like a ton of food and we could produce a ton more food. Um, but um, often because people are sourcing that cheap food, exports have been the big focus of like, you know, federal policies for the last 30, 40 years. Um, you know, effectively, um, we could be moving into a paradigm through growing our direct market um, system that would help to reduce the length of the supply chain, build more short supply chain resiliency here, and increase the amount of food calories that are grown here and consumed here. We, we have all the potential, like we, we could be doing all of that and we could still be exporting some food to other parts of the world. There's no reason why you should be eating lettuce from California or, um, you know, tomatoes from 
uh, Mexico, for example. Um, I know we have the winter months where the production volumes um, reduce here, but a very well-planned system would take those things into account. And it, it's not for lack of brains. We have some incredibly intelligent people working in the food system today. It's just that, you know, really as like a, a total population, like on the consumer side, consumers really need to be asking the questions and driving the market changes so that local supply chains, local markets are like really the focus of their consumption. And this would increase the amount of um, food we're growing and consuming here. One of the things that I remember really clearly was a couple a few years ago when California had the horrible droughts, which kind of now you're like, what? It's like every year there's horrible droughts, but um, uh, it was really serious food um, supplies were deeply disrupted and and this was the middle of the summer and all of a sudden lots of things disappeared from even here from the grocery shelves right lettuce cucumbers things and I could not believe it fruits things that I know were growing in BC um, and so like you know, as the, you know, the Canadian dollar also being so, you know, relatively weak compared to the U.S. dollar, and that may be coming down a bit, but still, we are weak compared to the U.S. dollar. Like, why still are we not, like, why are we still so dependent on California? Like, do you, like, yes, consumers should, um, you know, could, could demand more, be willing to pay more, but what else? Like, I feel like there's a few things that are broken that, um, maybe it could be fixed. Well, I mean, you go to the, like, you know, I live in Klaman territory um, in Powell River, and you go to the big box store, and you see that most of the product in the store is not coming from here. So um, it, it is back to, like, how um, consumers could drive drive that change to, like, create the localized demand. We are used to eating... Um, grapes all year round and we're used to eating um, passion fruit all year round if we want it um, like we've we've gotten used to having like a full access to a full array of things all year round and then we also haven't really leveraged like our storage and distribution channels for the local products so that they have more of a um, ability to stretch out through the seasons um, so you know this is just part of like the change matrix is like bringing um, more of these um, uh, like foods and focuses online um, like there are so many reasons why you know you can't get a grape in BC in January and it's coming up from California I always laugh because I go to the certified organic section and I buy my certified organic fruit you know I try to find the BC apples from Costin um, but maybe my oranges are coming from California and they're so delicious but I know that they might be certified organic but the water that that farm is using has probably been fracked. Um, and so it's like this really crazy, um, paradigm that we're living in around, um, all of these foods and, um, you know, there's no quick fix to those, um, 
types of issues, but they're more and more like current to how our institutions are thinking and trying to figure out um, how to change some of the um, supply chains that they're defaulting to. I love the example a couple of years ago, a lot of the blueberry growers in the Fraser Valley were actually having to dump blueberries. Like, oh my gosh, like dumping blueberries, that's sacrilegious. Um, and our um, awesome provincial minister of agriculture realized that the hospitals needed blueberries here in BC. So as opposed to those blueberries that had been like developed and commercialized for export down to the United States, you know, um, because of our North American free trade agreement, um, basically um, she figured out this, um, you know, rather large um, market here through the BC hospital system so that BC hospitals could access BC blueberries. The same, they also, um, you know, increased uh, quota in the province for egg production. And then those eggs, I believe, also um, have gone back into the BC hospital system. So you you really need people at that institutional level to like move, move and change supply chain patterns. It's kind of like a nerdy area where like university campuses are considering like how do we actually so source local for our cafeterias like you know often a lot of like the um the expectation is that you can buy bulk but a lot of like small scale farms can't afford to sell bulk or can't afford to sell wholesale and can't produce that level of wholesale scale that like maybe a university cafeteria needs a thousand carrots a day and they all need to be uniform and that you know that small scale farm can't do it so you need to source from like 10 farms to get your thousand carrots a day and these are all the kind of equations that people are working through to figure out you know how to shift to local um, supply chain producers and this is why like more and more relationships just need to exist between the person procuring food at that university cafeteria and the farmers in the local region so that they can actually start solving each other's problems and figuring out what the actual cost of food is and the market accessibility and all of these different pieces. And there's so much potential in there for lots and lots of small businesses. Um, you know, you mentioned distribution. We have a friend who started, that's what they did, an organic farm, uh, farm to restaurant, farm to store distribution company in the eastern U.S. And, um, I mean, it's just sort of like that's revolutionary thing. Oh, if you get enough small farmers together, then you can all of a sudden meet the needs of of a restaurant chain, a university, et cetera. But how many farm, small farmers do you know that have time and there's, you know, <laughs> to start a distribution company also? Um, so it, I imagine it's a whole world that if there's not people wanting to get into it and being encouraged into it, that all the side businesses also don't happen because the young people are, or, you know, the people who are um, young enough to want to get into this career are, like there's so way, few ways in. Um, you've mentioned a couple policy things uh, that either deter or sort of help uh, make farming happen. Can you talk about um, a couple models that are out there that um, that you know we could be adopting or that would make this idea of growing the agrarian uh, sector more possible? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, currently, what we're advocating for right now is a like, um, you know, government calls new farmers new entrants. <laughs> That's the government language for it. We're arguing for a national new entrant strategy. So not every province or territory um, 
in Canada has a new entrance strategy. There's definitely interest by government um, employees working in their ministries of agriculture to support new generation farmers, but it's really complicated. I've been thinking about it for 11 years, and man, it's still complicated. It really requires wraparound supports. And actually, Quebec is the leadership in the country in terms of the amount of wraparound supports that are there and the amount of resources they have available to new farmers. Okay, so you might talk to a young Quebec farmer, and they might not necessarily totally feel that way because maybe there was some barrier challenge around accessing a grant or a loan, but at least those things exist in Quebec. They have um, uh, an infrastructure bank in Quebec that buys land. Um, I believe that that project will be to actually sell land back to farmers or lease land back to farmers. Um, they have a fully provincialized land matching service. There are 44 land matchers across Quebec. They run a startup granting program for um, new farm businesses. There are two two tiers, like 10 to 50,000 and 50,000 plus. They have a um, provincial loan program called FIRA that runs land acquisition loan fund and an operating capital loan fund. Um, they can provide your farm with up to $15,000 in extension services to help you with your production or your business development or if you're an aging farmer that needs a succession plan you can also access those resources for your farm so what we're asking the federal government is to position the Quebec model as the strategy for a national new entrant strategy of course money moving from the federal government to the province of Quebec moves differently in the province of Quebec, which has had way more autonomy around how they allocate, which is why they have a much more advanced uh, continuum of services for new farmers and the rest of English-speaking Canada. Okay, but over to English-speaking Canada. Um, British Columbia is lucky to have a new entrance strategy, but um, as far as I understand it, these uh, might not exist at the provincial levels in the prairies or in Ontario. Um or Atlantic Canada. I could be wrong. Um, we've had little bits of interactions with, um, you know, government staff from all across the country that are looking at our model here in BC and asking, how can we get these things going? Um, but they really require institutional levels of support to make them happen. So on top of this recommendation for a national new entrance strategy, um, we're also recommending that the federal government, which it, it is doing, uh, it's in beginning uh, development of that through the on-farm climate adaptation program. But we're recommending uh, the way of doing it as an organization in the southern United States, which is very well known in the U.S. called SARE, S-A-R-E. And SARE, basically, they run a research arm. So they research um, how to do on-farm practices, like ecosystem practices on farms. Then they offer extensions. So that's some research nerd or agrologist that will come and help you figure out how to implement best practices from research on your farm. So you get the knowledge transfer. And then they actually have an implementation arm. So implementation capital so that that farmer can pay for implementing best practices on farms. So that is, again, research, extension, 
and implementation capital. And that's the kind of thing that I've been advocating for. Um, BC is increasing the amount of extension available in the province. That's like changing quite a bit right now. They are, they have been responsive um, to uh, farmers saying that they need extension. We used to have quite a bit more in earlier days than we have had in the past um, probably two or three decades. And now they're really putting a lot of energy into kind of increasing their extension capacity again so that farmers can access them in BC. And so this is what we're seeing as a potential paradigm change is that the federal government adopts the national new entrance strategy. All the provinces are required to have them. The provinces can then access cost share money from the federal government and alongside having resources as described for things like land matching, um, grants, loans, and other types of um, technical assistance supports. Um, there would also be a really kick-ass, you know, research extension implementation capital continuum so that farms can adapt to climate change and market economics, and hopefully we have a future resilient system. So that's, you know, the big picture vision for um, federal policy change. I don't know if we're going to be able to implement it at that scale, but there are um, programs underway. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, like um, how well the program design will kind of come out in the wash. Um, but really trying to encourage the government folk that we work with to be like more innovative, less risk adverse, like, you know, really make significant investment in new gen farmers and recognize that, you know, we, re we really need these resilient local farms that um, are basically working with um, good genetic seed stock, um, non-genetically modified, that they have, you know, if they're doing animals, that they have access to what they need for um, like processing and, you know, that we have people that have good, like, animal uh, husbandry and genetics um, happening in all of our communities. Like we're, we're kind of going like beyond just like, Hey, you need to support new farmers to like, Hey, you really need to transition our whole food system into like a resilient, robust climate adaptive, um, you know, it, over the next hundred years, climate mitigating um, ecosystem so that, you know, we can, like go back to uh, a time before industrialization <laughs> where, you know, we have healthy land use practices and we have healthy young people entering the sector and you can enter the sector, quote unquote sector. You can enter onto land. You can grow food. You can make a living. It can be viable. Like all of these things are possible, but it, it's really going to require like, you know, consumers and, politicians and bureaucrats and institutional lenders and like the whole kind of gamut of people is required for us to have a healthy food system because we all eat. We all eat. All right. We're going to take a little break so that you neighbor can call in and ask your questions at 250-935-0200. Don't worry, you don't go direct on air. You can just ask Sarah your question and then she'll answer it on air. 250-935-0200. Or, yeah, so you can just uh, stay tuned in and listen to a little bit more in a moment. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM or on the web at cortezradio.ca and this is Folk U Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. 
to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. You're listening to Folk You, and today we are talking about the young agrarians with Sarah Dent. And we're not just talking about the young agrarians, we're talking about the future of farming and whether or not, as we said at the beginning, the end is nigh. Uh, but despite that um, and the many barriers that farmers, particularly uh, new, young, or those interested in um, regenerative agriculture, I believe is what you said, uh, the barriers that they face, there are 
some really amazing things happening right now. And one of the things that I think that your organization uh, that you spoke a little bit about is grappling with, which I think is both inspiring and also just something that we as Canadians are all um, needing to figure out how to grapple with is the idea of making reconciliation a part of our, our work and our lives. Can you talk a little bit more about how you're doing that through the Young Agrarians? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think reconciliation, truth and reconciliation is like the work that, um, you know, just like our future food system and the hope that everybody kind of tunes into their food and where it comes from. Like, I really, really strongly believe that everybody um, here on these lands um, can be participating in a truth and reconciliation process. Um, it's part of the cultural shift that I think would be really healthy for our um, futures. Um, and so for me, um, truth and reconciliation is important to me. Um, I um, am lo- lucky enough to know um, about uh, how my family came here and um, what it, it was like for them coming here. And then also, you know, we really, in my household, were raised basically to understand that, um, you know, basically that the, these are not our lands. These are um, lands that had um, and have cultures that have been here for uh, millennia. And um, so for me, over the years, working with uh, mostly rural farming population um, in a lot of areas, like, you know, if we have like a young farmer mixer for a weekend out in um a community in BC, you know, often we end up with a a lot of white young farmers um, coming into those spaces. And so kind of early days, I made it a goal for us to, you know, be recognizing the territory and then trying to go beyond just um, territory recognitions, um, going uh, deeper into how do we build relationships in our communities and build relationships um, around truth and reconciliation. And um, currently, I I spoke earlier about this training partnership that we have with uh, KinShift. Um, That's been a a really beautiful journey because... um, the uh, founder leadership at Kinshift, um, Kelly Turbasket, was part of setting up um, Indigenize, which are these youth uh, leadership programs uh, for young Indigenous people. She she runs a whole series of trainings. So they do the Indigenize youth programs um, for Indigenous youth. They also do um, trainings for Indigenous adults. Um, to uh, basically help support youth and um, her work is like really powerful and important and her aunt is one of the powerhouses here um, who runs the Okanagan Nation Alliance uh, Pauline Turbasket she's one of my big heroes Um, you know she's done a lot of work with um, Slow Food International and she's traveled around the world and she's done a ton of work for indigenous food sovereignty helping to rewild the waterways in the Okanagan on her traditional territory um, bringing back salmon populations and ensuring that salmon is available to her community 
Um, so Pauline is come and she's opened up some of our young farmer mixers and she's workshopped and she, um, is also trained in the, you know, power hope model of, um, you know, that creative empowerment model of facilitation that I got exposure to through power of hope at Linnea farm and, um, that Kelly is working with, um, through Kinshift. And so, you know, Kelly's organization is offering these reconciliation trainings, the earth, air, water, fire series. And they're just such a win for us because for every farmer we put through these workshops, um, the money goes back into their indigenous youth programs. So Kinshift is a social enterprise that funds indigenize, which are these, you know, programs, um, to, to support, you know, indigenous people on their journeys. Um, and so I like to say that, you know, we're on indigenous lands and we are currently, we're all paying for colonization. The land is super expensive and, you know, you, you kind of can't get away from the karma of having taken and stolen land. So, um, BC, British Columbia is 96% crown land. Um, so, the rest of that land is majority private holdings and a small percentage of that is actually probably less than 1% is treated back to first nations who've been willing to go through the treaty process to, you know, like the Niska, for example. And I believe like Clahoos here have been able to claim uh, lands, which are a small percentage of where they would have been in terms of um, uh, like, you know, pre-colonization. Um, and so that title system, it, it's not working for young people. And that title system is also not working for land use practices. Like the way that we've managed forests, like clear cutting, logging, not doing good logging practices, spraying the land with glyphosate. Like we have left incredibly vulnerable tracts of land that are owned by the crown that are, um, ecologically impoverished because of crown management practices, you know, and First Nations, when they're trying to get land back, they're not asking for their neighbor's privately held house. They're asking for crown lands, right? And you see with the Chicolton, for example, like they have been managing their lands and using traditional wildfire practices for millennia that are needed controlled burns are needed for managing the land and we haven't been doing these controlled burns so we have so much to learn from the chilcotin um so this moment it's 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 not it's it's about us coming together with indigenous people that are leading the way on the land and have been for millennia and supporting that and ensuring that our indigenous communities can access good foods. And um, there's an incredible farm in Kitwanga, BC named Tea Creek Farm. We love this farm. Um, they're really focused on indigenous food sovereignty. So they are, um, they started um, basically the year that COVID hit, they started a new farm and uh, they were going to sell food, but COVID hit and they just started giving the food away into the community. Now, Northern BC has had some of the highest morbidity rates from COVID. Um, so they've had large numbers of people that have passed on um, 
Mostly because, like, you know, I would connect that over to good quality foods are really expensive in the north and people are impoverished um, in that way in terms of what they can access for the food system. They're impoverished by colonization. They're impoverished by not having their traditional lands or their traditional practices, um, you know, stuck onto reserves. And um, Tea Creek Farm is basically, they're providing a program by and for indigenous people that trains indigenous people in, um, you know, carpentry and farming and, um, you know, baking and all sorts of different um, hands-on experiential, educational, culturally safe educational model by and for indigenous people. And so there are um, indigenous food sovereignty projects happening around um, this quote-unquote province, but they are under-resourced, underfunded, funded and um, a lot of the um, provincial governments federal government they're really keen on indigenous agriculture but you know the same barriers that apply for new farmers um, are even bigger for new indigenous farmers so um, there is like a greater consciousness around we need to resource indigenous farmers Um, and models like Tea Creek Farm represent like a paradigm shifting opportunity for um, like basically people to be training and last year they grew 20,000 pounds of food and they gave that food away they did not sell it so their model is really around the training model and um, they are basically like you know one of my favorite projects that are happening Um, and so you know to me like um, I'm not indigenous um, but I come from like my you know, my ethnicity is one that, you know, genocide is a big part of my cultural makeup. And um, I want to be an ally. I want to know. I want to be responsible. I hear a lot of people in the rural places that I'm in who say, well, it wasn't me. It doesn't matter if it wasn't you. It's us collectively. It's not an individual thing. It's basically how we have this thing called land title, the legislative system, these huge written scripts that have parceled out um, through paper documentation a landscape that cannot function in quadrants. It doesn't work in squares. It can only work in large um, ecological um, patterns that have existed long before we ever had a land title system to circumscribe and break up the landscape. And I'm not saying that this is simple in today's world, that we just transition from one to the other. But man, do we ever need to speed up that transition? Because the very answers that we need are held in the people that have been here for thousands of years. So yeah, reconciliation. I think it's uh, it's a lifelong journey and one that I really encourage people not to shy away from and um, that we need to do our work and our learning and our education before we can show up and be good allies and not create more harm. Um, I'm really not wanting a bunch of like, you know, farmers just to show up at their local nation and be like, here, I can help you dot, dot, dot. It's like we, we need to build relationships, build trust, learn, do our work, learn where we are. Um, learn about the people whose lands we're on, build relationships. And I think over time, there can be really beautiful um, synergies that happen through relationships. Um, And really, to me, that's like the kind of culture I want to 
I want to live in. And I think this cultural piece is actually really important to the future of food. Thank you for that. What about, um, talk to us a little bit about uh, what is happening uh, in other parts of the world, organizations that are out there. Um, in particular, we had a question in particular about the U.S. and whether there was organizations like yours. But also, I'm wondering, like, who are the models around the world uh, and the organizations that get you inspired, that when you're feeling down or overwhelmed or whatever that you go to, to kind of, you know, remind you that there are things out there that are working in places and we can perhaps learn from them here. My favoriteest of all the favorites are Slow Food International and Holistic Management International. Uh, Slow Food International um, is a brilliant organization that started in Italy, which has a huge culture of co-ops and a deep passion and love for food, really strong food culture. And the slow food model, it's basically kind of like a, um, like a model, you know, people go there from all over the world um, every two years for their Terra Madre. It's an international gathering of basically like ecological food producers from around the world. And they bring their traditional foods to Italy. And the Italian government has changed the regulations to allow these foods to come into the country to feed people who go to Terra Madre. And I got to go, like I got to be a guest at the very beginning of Young Agrarians in 2012. So Slow Food Vancouver paid for my airplane ticket and I got to go to Italy. Um, first stop was an Italian olive farm for a couple of weeks to like woof and be on the land and then got to go to Terra Madre in Turin. And it was like my favoriteest thing that I have ever done in, in my whole life journey was going to Terra Madre. And they have this beautiful opening ceremony where there's, um, you know, two people from each country and they bring their flag and they do a big ceremony around that and they they have multiple pavilions that are all kind of designed with composting and you know like set up and take down but not kind of destroy the planet through our you know ecological food fair um, type design principle and you will meet people from all over the world and they will feed you the best things ever and so they they support people to basically like um, help to revitalize like food pathways that have been denigrated through like industrialization um, and get those food cultures like you know it might be a tomato for example that's been traditionally grown in a region of Italy that is barely grown anymore and has no market so they help form a co-op around that particular food and then that creates uh, more of a market um, around that food and then that helps that community to start having um, like a revenue source from that traditional um, food. So that's just one example. You know, they have, they, they did something called the Thousand Gardens in Africa Project. So they've actually started way more than a thousand food gardens in Africa. So that's African-led um, and they, the year I went, they had this like model 
African garden, like in the middle of the international pavilion. And they showed the way that they were doing the production, like at a, a like a small scale um, level. But yeah, they've worked with um, people all around the world and they've done it through this beautiful kind of like chapter model. And they built this really beautiful um, culture of participation that is global and comes together every couple of years in Italy for this um food festival and so the other organization is holistic management international and i got to go to a uh, holistic management international conference in california during the drought in 2016 at uh piscinus ranch um which is um where the no regrets initiative was born out of um it's a beautiful uh project and collaboration with a number of different um, incredible organizations around the states that are really focused on, um, you know, bringing back ecology to the landscape. Um, this particular ranch has been trying for several years to get the native grasses back into the landscape, but drought has been preventing that. There used to be a, a place where the grasses were like 10 or 12 feet, and they're just trying to figure out whether the genetic material for those grasses still exists within the landscape because it's been so dramatically altered altered through these huge landscape level droughts. Um, so holistic management is powerful because they work with, um, you know, a lot of animal production globally. And I think they um, are really addressing what's a huge knowledge gap for most people. Um, you know, lots of people are on that train around beyond meat and they don't realize that their beyond meat is basically owned by some of the biggest corporate um, food companies uh, in the States and internationally and that the practices for the, you know, vegan or vegetarianism is basically the same terrible practices. Um, I'm not advocating for um, caged animal farm operations or cathos, slaughterhouses or any of the ways that we have seen industrial production happen for meat um what I am arguing for is that a good ecosystem is one where the animals are tending the plants. So if you're in a holistic management system, your focus is the plant life in the landscape. And the more the plant life becomes resilient, the more it feeds the animals on that landscape, the more you as a person tending that landscape can intensify the animals in that landscape. Um, and so we're seeing some of these positive examples where um, you know, like First Nations communities are bringing back buffalo, um, you know, basically into landscape using these like time immemorial um, practices of, you know, having animals kind of like range and graze and range and graze and range and graze over larger tracts of land. This is part of rewilding landscapes. This is part of connecting up wild corridors so there are more wild corridors. Um, this is all part of. Um, you know, and we need, we do need to get um, domestic animals out of wild corridors so wild corridors can recover and be wild and make sure that we can still breathe oxygen. But in terms of like uh, organizations with incredible practices, Holistic Management International, like they've worked with over a million acres globally. They teach people the holistic management model. It's kind of like permaculture, but with a financial um, component to it. it. It's really about holistic planning for your land, including financial viability um and uh yeah those are my two favorite organizations slow food international and holistic management international and when i got to go to the conference in california i got to meet grazers from all over the world 
you know, people managing like 10,000 acres, right? Like in South Africa, where you're like, oh, so the local creature is like the, well, you know what, South Africa, like, what are you going to run into in the landscape there? Like, you're going to get into your truck and maybe you're going to run into a leopard. Like here, we're worried about cougars, but (laughs) you know, you're just imagining like totally different landscapes and these brilliant farmers that are figuring out like how to keep the, like try and get those landscapes back to landscape health and, you know, provide food for their communities. So, um, yeah, those are the places where I find inspiration. I, I love both the inspiration of what you shared and also your, um, willingness to go into, uh, matters that I think can be like hard, you know, or controversial. Like, you know, I find now that it's quite popular for people who care about the climate as, or the, the earth, let's just say the people who clear, care about the world that we live in and are kind of like looking and examining and living these lives of like, okay, we are in this time of deep impact and I want to make a difference. And, but we also see many times as people to want easy answers. And I think, you know, often uh, the way I hear vegetarianism talked about it's that, right? Oh, my easy answer is I'm going to get the Beyond Meat Burger. My husband and I fight about this all the time. He's like, I'm just going to get the Beyond Meat ver- Burger. And I'm like, Are you can't, like, really? Because it's genetically modified. It's coming from, like, China. Like, it's filled with pesticides. It's filled with pesticides. It's based on bad agricultural practices. It's not taking into account the fact that you need animal nitrogen to grow vet- vegetables. So, effectively, most people who are down that rabbit hole, they don't understand the nitrogen cycle. Like, they're remiss. Like, you need, like, in a healthy ecosystem, you need animal manure to provide the nitrogen to grow your vegetables. In an unhealthy one, you're importing all that nitrogen in bags through chemical and pesticide applications so that those plants can grow. You need nitrogen to grow food. So plants capture nitrogen and bring it back into soils. Animals eat the plants right? There's a whole cycle. And then they fertilize the plants with their manure that has nitrogen in it. So it's a nitrogen ecosystem cycle that requires plants and animals. Like I don't look at, and I know this sounds a little silly, it's probably because I've been working in agriculture for too long, but I don't look at animals as animals. I look at them as stewards of plant systems. I just love that way of talking about it because then you also look at places like right here on the island, you can look at Blue Jay Farm, for instance, right? Where they have like, you know, they grow, they actually have cows. They have a couple of those evil cows (laughs) and what are like, and they use all that manure to grow their amazing organic vegetables and fruits. It's all there regenerating the landscape. They get Mm. a little bit of dairy. They, um, you know, might butcher a couple cows every year, uh, you know, that they can sell for like this most amazing, you know, beef that you'll ever get. Mm -hmm. And it's so small scale. And so when you talk about, oh, yeah, the right amount of animals to serve your plants, Mm -hmm. and then we think about it on a landscape um, scale, it starts to feel possible, perhaps, Mm -hmm. and less black and white also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mutually beneficial 
systems of support that are like integrated ecologies between animals and vegetables and i you know it's part of the cheap food culture is this like culture of guilt that drives kind of veganism but continues to perpetuate industrial agricultural practices like if beyond meat was owned by your working class neighbor then maybe it would be like a thing but beyond meat is the same industrial agricultural system that you're rejecting with like caged animal farm operations which we should all reject and you know, the irony is that those CAFOs are effectively feeding their animals like feedstock that they wouldn't normally have access to, like corn. And that's producing the methane through burps, not through farts, through burps. That is like a major greenhouse gas emission. So you get those animals back onto the landscape off of corn, off of GMO corn grown with a shit ton of pesticides, excuse my French. And all of a sudden you have animals that can actually live their lives in the ways that they have been for thousands of years in the landscape and they can be part of a productive ecosystem. And, you know, it's, it's, it's no doubt that people are kind of missing that, you know, level of education. I think a lot of people transition onto, um, you know, vegetarianism because their health isn't doing that great. They need to cut out processed foods. Um, but you know, like that getting really high quality, um, meat is a really important part of, um, for a lot of people, it's a really important part of a healthy diet. And, um, uh, I, I think that it's just interesting the way those things have, um, socially trended, but I am a proud meat eater. I work very hard to source good meat as much as possible. None of us are perfect. We can't get it perfect. We live in a in a strange world. Like we have populations that are, you know, really overexposed to industrialized foods that have really poor health outcomes. Um, lots of people that have been so disconnected from the land, from good water, from good food, and there's a driving need for us to reclaim our health and a lot of that is really through having like healthy whole food um, nutrient uh, supply that we can afford and access that can help us with our health and you know for me when I went to Linnea I was obsessed with soil like I was a soil nerd and I spent years on the land and um, at a certain point I got I got quite sick and you know eventually I went from nerding out on soil to nerding out on the gut biome and I learned a lot about how the gut ecology works and in you know 2018 I got diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease um and of course the genetics for that the genes had turned on in my body for IBD um and what I didn't realize is that once I cut out complex carbohydrates um I could have a much healthier life um and actually managed to reverse inflammatory bowel disease in my body through eating monosaccharides which we evolved on monosaccharides over millennia millions of years actually and we've only really gone into like complex carbohydrates over the last 10,000 years so lots of people talk about cutting carbs that's another eye roller for me I like to kind of give people the nerd out carbohydrates are either monosaccharides polysaccharides or disaccharides we evolved on monosaccharides we, we need some specific examples like give okay, us I'll the give food it. Give I'll us give the us food. the food yeah, so yeah. monosaccharides right they are um, and they're basically like fruits and vegetables nuts um 
aged cheeses are monosaccharides after the disaccharide sugar lactose has been eaten by bacteria. Aged cheeses, um, you know, goat cheese is way better for people than cow cheese because it doesn't have the casein protein in it, which can really be um, a bad one for people. Um, other like basically like animal fat, animal protein and animal fat. Those are not monosaccharides, but we are totally adapted to them. Um, so that's like a monosaccharide um, diet. So I cut out polysaccharides and complex carbohydrates, aka grains, um, for a couple of years, and I I healed the inflammation in my bowel. So if you think about your gut as a great translator of your environment into the nutrient matrix in your body, you have this perfect analogous paradigm between how we've internalized industrialization and how we've done that through the externalization of industrial systems on the landscape and so really that inner reclamation of our our food our whole food supply our monosaccharides and don't get me wrong disaccharides and polysaccharides are delicious you just need to have um you know like an intact enough gut ecology to be able to eat those um these are some kind of like the paradigm shifting um ideas that you know if i didn't do my day job trying to farm farmers for the future uh, i would probably be helping people to transition onto like monosaccharide diets to heal inflammation, recover from health issues, and then, you know, hopefully joyously eat their whatever polysaccharides like down the road. It's all part of the kind of cultural paradigm shift that I think we're living through. If we could just start calling it dye and mono uh, saccharide, uh, you know and polysaccharides then we wouldn't you know instead of like chocolate croissant <laughs> it would be easier to avoid well i for one am really glad that you are growing farmers right now at least can you give us two sort of resource lists um so the first one you've just listened to this show you're super inspired you want to kind of start growing something of your own you know, or just start thinking about uh, agriculture or agrarianism for the first time, right? You're just new and you're started. Will you give us the resource list of like what to go Google after the show? Not Google, what to go, duck, duck, go after the show. Okay, duck, duck, Google, Google. Um, Yeah, I would go to Slow Food International and check out their site because they are my inspiration source. youngagrarians.org has a lot of stuff for new and young farmers. So that might not be your nerd out if you're really at the beginning of your um, food system journey. There are beautiful um, films that are coming out on Netflix. Um, um, Gathered is a really beautiful one on indigenous food sovereignty. I hope I have that name right. Um, Kiss the Ground's been quite popular um, in terms of kind of the looking at the American landscape and that transition over to quote unquote regenerative agriculture practices. Um, Like there's a lot of, I think, media out there that can kind of help us on that beginning learning journey. Um, So yeah, I I really think it it starts with self-love and then 
loving the people who are growing your food and um, moving from that place of like, how can I uh, consume things that are better for my body and better for the planet and love up my neighbor through some of these really important ideas and like sharing and growing the culture. And that's why Slow Food International has been so successful because they predicated everything on the, the exchange, the eating of food. It's based on making the culture of change delicious. And we all kind of like, you know, deserve is a strong word, but we all deserve to live in a delicious, um, food secure, food sovereign, resilient system. And I, I, I strongly believe that every single one of us, because we eat, we're all part of that paradigm change. So start however small, grow, you know, go to your farmer's market. Um, buy food from your farmers, um, check out the BC Farmers Associate Market Association. They have a coupon program that's over a million plus dollars. Um, they provide those coupons all across BC to resource organizations, women's shelters, so that people um, with less access to capital can go to farmers markets and get um, whole food and the farmer can get paid for their food. Um, there are brilliant people, solutionaries everywhere in every single corner of the places that we live that are working hard for us. Blue Jay Lake, Linnea Farm. Um, like it, it's quite powerful what those people are doing. And so we just need to continue to support them and understand it's a complex food system out there. And we're part of that web. And the more we can navigate the, that complexity and not be reductionist about it, I think the better lives we can actually embrace and live. I love that you um, remind people that one of the things that they can do is just go and support their local farm market, which we are really lucky to have amazing um, small-scale local farmers and gardeners, market gardeners on this island uh, that you can get food from. So now, for the people who are listening who are actually farming, who are making a go of it and heard about some of the resources that you offer, such as uh, land matching, um, uh, or mentoring, um, et cetera. Where do they go if they want to learn more? Youngagrarians.org. Yeah, if you want to participate in the BC Land Matching Program, um, we have our, our full list, our staff list on the contact page to tell you who your land matcher is for your particular area. If you want to um, potentially participate in the Business Mentorship Network, our intake is usually in October each year and we'll pair you up with a farm business mentor. Um, we have so many resources this fall winter we'll be offering six week business boot camps online where you'll hang out with 30 other peers and you'll have farm mentor educators come and lead you through the process of writing your own business plan um yeah we're we're here to be your resource um and community building network so you know um check us out at org. i feel like i need a clap <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah, for what you do, the inspiration of who you are, and um, and for taking the time to be in this very hot little office today talking about this important topic. Much appreciated. It's so beautiful to be here. I'm so grateful to be here today. Thank you for this awesome interview and for doing co-op radio. Yay! Well, thank you, neighbor, because community radio only happens with your support and your input. Uh, we love hearing from you, and I love hearing from you uh, at Folk You. 
You've been listening to Folk U Radio at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. You can get involved in lots and lots of ways. You can find out more by visiting our website. You can always donate a little bit of money or come see us at that farm market. Learn more, talk to Howie, buy some of the nice merchandise um, that he always picks out and has for sale. You cannot go wrong, and we appreciate you. I like to hear from you. I want to know what you thought of today's show. I want to uh, hear your ideas for future shows. Next week, we have Peggy Taylor of the um, previously mentioned Power of Hope and Pi Global coming to join us. I would love to hear your questions uh, for her. You can send them in advance at the letter U at folku.ca. Thanks for another great show, neighbor. I appreciate you. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F O L K U.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can't think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring? Hello, neighbor. This is your host, Mando Fox Gillespie, Folk U Radio. I want to do a couple announcements. There's lots of exciting things lined up this summer. Uh, first of all, did you know that Cortez Community Radio is hosting a free tech drop-in? Uh, your amazing Clio tech expert will be doing that every Wednesday, 2.30 to 4.30 here at the Cortez Radio station. Uh, so if you are here in Cortez, you can come by and get some free tech support Tuesday, uh, Wednesdays, 2.30 to 4.30 in the Manson's Hall parking lot. We have some open night, open mic nights coming up, 7 to 9 at Manson's Hall in the Pioneer Room. The next ones are Wednesday, August 3rd, and then two weeks later, Wednesday, August 17th. Those, again, are at 7 p.m. They're just by donation. There's going to be a snack bar available, so you can come have your equivalent of dinner. Everybody is welcome, and hey, bring a song or a poem to share, or just come and cheer people on. And... Do not forget that Sunday, August 14th, 
Your Cortez Community Radio is helping to sponsor Love Fest this year. Love Fest on Cortez Island. This is an island favorite, 11 to 9 p.m. There's a special kids show this year from 11 to noon. This will be at Linnea Farm. You can get tickets in advance for the whole family for just $60 or under 18. Those are only $20. You can pick them up at the Cortez. Oh, under 18, it's $20, and regular tickets are $25. If you get them in advance at Cortez Island Stores, the Friday Market, um, the probably the CKTZ booth. Don't you love CKTZ? You can share the love anytime. Visit us at CKTZ uh, on the way on the web at CortezRadio.ca, and you can help support your local community radio station. Thanks, neighbors, so much for all you do and for being part of this community. Until next time. <laughs>